Hello, folks. Welcome back to our award-winning podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Jen. Today, we're diving deep into a fascinating subject that challenges our very perception of movement in time, the flash lag effect. This effect has mystified and captivated researchers, but has recently come under scrutiny. In the paper, Temporal Errors, Researchers Should Stop Studying the Flash Lag Effect, authors Alex O'Holcomb and Joshua J. Corbett take a bold stance that we'll unpack for you. To appreciate the weight of this paper, we need to understand the backdrop. The flash lag effect is perceived when a stationary flash occurs alongside a moving object. The moving object appears to be ahead of its actual position. It's a quirk of our visual perception. Classic interpretations suggest that our brains, not wanting to lag behind, extrapolate the position of moving objects to predict where they'll be in the next moment. At first glance, it seems like a nifty trick of the mind helping us to perceive a seamless world. However, Holcomb and Corbett aren't buying it. They argue that the flash lag effect isn't just about our brains playing catch up with moving objects. They suggest other mechanisms at play, a cocktail of timing errors they refer to as temporal errors. That's right, Jen. These errors, like intermittent updates of an object's position or the misbinding of temporal and spatial information, suggest our brains might not just be extrapolating, but might be, well, sometimes out of sync with reality. They examined 42 articles to see which theories were supported. Surprisingly, only two mentioned any alternative explanations to extrapolation, showing an imbalance in the literature. Exactly. They propose that this overemphasis on a single cause, extrapolation, might be why researchers are perhaps too focused on studying this effect. They are essentially calling for a paradigm shift. It's a hefty claim that, if true, doesn't just change how we look at the flash lag effect, but could reshuffle the deck on other perceptual phenomena, too. So, listeners, hold on to your seats as we unpack this controversial take on a well-studied perceptual illusion. We promise you a journey that will enlighten, entertain, and maybe even flash ahead of what you thought you knew about the way we perceive our world. Don't blink, or you might lag behind. And remember, your thoughts are important. This is a preprint paper, which means it's open for discussion. So as we go along, think about the points raised and let us know your perspective. Buckle up, everyone. It's time to delve into the intricacies of perception, prediction, and the potential temporal errata of the human brain. Let's unwrap the enigmatic world of the flash lag effect and why it may be time to steer our research efforts elsewhere. Stay tuned. <music> Have you ever noticed that when you throw a party, no one ever seems to show up on time? Well, have no fear, because from the brains behind the groundbreaking paper, Temporal Errors, researchers should stop studying the flash lag effect, comes... Sync up party planners. The only party planning service with a scientifically backed guarantee that your guests will arrive precisely when they intend to, or at least when you perceive them to. SyncUp uses patented temporal alignment technology to adjust for your guests' individual time perception errors. Are your friends always fashionably late? With SyncUp, their arrival time is adjusted so that they actually appear on your doorstep the moment you blink. Is your Aunt Gertrude always embarrassingly early? SyncUp's time distortion field will gently delay her entrance until the perfect moment. And for that friend who always says, 
I'll be there in five minutes, and shows up an hour later? Our flashlag sync bands have them covered. Simply set the desired arrival time, and the band takes care of the rest, ensuring they're right on time, every time. Say goodbye to awkward waits and cold appetizers. Sync up where every entrance is perfectly timed. Sync up party planners, because who wouldn't want their guests to arrive in the right place at the right time? Disclaimer. Side effects may include guests forgetting why they came to the party in the first place. Results may vary based on individual perception, not responsible for time travelers. Welcome to our Deep Dive podcast, where we unravel the complexities of groundbreaking research papers. I'm Tom, your co-host for today's episode. And I'm Jen. Today we're picking apart a fascinating study titled Motif Learning Facilitates Sequence Memorization and Generalization by Shuchen Wu, Mirko Thalman, and Eric Schultz from the Max Planck Institute for Biological Cybernetics. That's right, Jen. Our ability to recognize patterns and motifs is deeply ingrained in our daily experiences, whether it's listening to music, learning a new language, or solving mathematical equations. Exactly. For instance, when we hear the iconic notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, we instantly recognize the motif and variations thereof, despite the complexity of the music. This paper delves into how abstract representations, such as motifs, can be used to efficiently memorize sequences and generalize to novel situations. Moreover, Jen, the paper really pushes the boundaries of our understanding of sequence learning which has traditionally focused on other concepts like learning transition probabilities or chunking. The researchers put forth two new categories of abstraction, projectional motifs and variable motifs. These motifs, Tom, are quite compelling because they bring under the spotlight a foundational cognitive capability. As complex as it gets, motifs help simplify and compress information, this not only makes learning more efficient, but also aids in transferring knowledge to new, yet related sequences. So let's dig in further. The study proposes a model that can learn abstract representations using these motifs alongside traditional strategies. The thoroughness of this approach gives new insights into the mechanics of learning and generalization in humans. And when we talk about learning, it's not your run-of-the-mill concept. It's about our ability to abstract motifs from perceived sequences and how this proficiency gives us an edge in terms of memory and adaptability. Right. The researchers build on previous studies and identify a gap that has been overlooked, abstract patterns and sequences, and how they are acquired. To address this gap, they introduce two types of algebraic abstractions, projectional motifs and variable motifs, which we'll dive into step by step. This paper could very well revolutionize our understanding of cognitive processing and provide a blueprint for more advanced artificial intelligence systems. And that's not even scratching the surface yet, Jen. Throughout this podcast, we'll break down the complex vocabulary, explore the methodology the authors used, discuss the incredible findings, and examine the applications and far-reaching implications of this study. Hold on tight, listeners. It's going to be an intellectual adventure as we explore the world of abstract motifs and their role in human learning and memory. Let's get started. Jumping right into the core of this paper, we encounter a trial of research objectives. The authors are driven to understand how abstract representations of sequences are constructed during learning and whether cultivating these abstract notions offers any advantage in memory recall. 
Their detailed methodology hinges on experimental rigor. Participants were divided into groups, undergoing sequence recall tasks. Group 1 dealt with projectional motifs, which is essentially finding a common theme through distinct sequences, while Group 2 tackled variable motifs, dealing with variable identifiers within a sequence. As for the findings and results, the study elucidates that teaching the participants about projectional and variable motifs improved their recall accuracy, especially in novel sequences sharing the same motif. This has profound implications, suggesting that humans use such abstractions to build efficient sequential memory representations. These findings dovetail into several applications, such as refining teaching methods to incorporate abstract learning, or perhaps developing more intuitive AI systems that can learn and generalize from abstract motifs similar to the way humans do. In our comprehensive conclusion, we will reiterate the main takeaways from this study. Essentially, it proposes a novel perspective on human abstraction learning and generalization. It also emphasizes the need for AI to draw on these natural mechanisms of human thought to advance its capabilities. And Tom, the personal reflections on this paper really revolve around the awe-inspiring ability we as humans have to simplify complexity via motifs. Abstract thinking is much more than just a sophisticated feat. It's an integral part of how we cognitively navigate the world. Ensuring our listeners leave with a deep understanding of this study, shrouded in clarity and insight, is the benchmark for today's episode. Let's continue with our systematic exploration of these compelling research discoveries. Sound of a dramatic. Folks, have you ever found yourself bumbling through learning and memorization, thinking there's got to be a better way? Well, now there is, introducing the latest craze in education and memory enhancement, motif magic. With a charmingly exaggerated magician's tone. With motif magic, gone are the days when you struggled to remember your grocery list or the periodic table. We've harnessed the power of motif-based learning right from the breakthrough research paper we dissected today. Quirky and enthusiastic. Imagine memorizing your entire shopping list by associating bananas with the minions from Despicable Me or pairing your need for eggs with Humpty Dumpty. Our patented Modifizer technology extracts common threads from your study material and transforms them into easy-to-remember patterns, or as we like to call them, mental sticky notes. Mental sticky notes? That's right, Tom. It's like turning your brain into a Velcro ball and your study material into little fuzzy sticks. Just throw them at your brain and watch them stay. Sign up for Motif Magic today, and we'll throw in a set of bonus brain-boosting mantras. You'll be chanting, mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell in no time. So don't delay, listeners. Latch onto Motif Magic, where abstract learning meets absolute fun. Tom and Jen, Motif Magic. Stick it. Learn it. Ace it. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode, where we delve into the fascinating world of early language development and social interactions. Specifically, we're going to talk about a groundbreaking study titled Mother-Infant Social Gaze Dynamics Relate to Infant Brain Activity and Word Segmentation. This research is significant because it explores how a mother's gaze towards her infant can influence the baby's brain activity and subsequent language learning abilities. 
The paper is authored by an interdisciplinary team with backgrounds ranging from developmental psychology and linguistics to educational psychology and cognitive sciences. Their investigation digs deep into the mechanics of the so-called social brain and connects it to the way infants learn language through social interactions featuring mutual gazes. Right, let's talk a bit about the key concepts they've addressed. First up, the social brain is an assortment of brain areas that respond to social cues, like eye contact, facial expressions, and gestures. Another essential theory addressed in the study is word segmentation, which is the process where infants begin to recognize individual words within the stream of spoken language, a foundational skill for language acquisition. To understand the paper's findings, it's also helpful to know what functional near-infrared spectroscopy, or FNERS, is. It's a type of neuroimaging tech that measures blood flow in the brain to monitor neural activity. And one more piece of complex vocabulary used in the paper is joint recurrence quantification analysis, a method to study the timing and patterns of gaze between moms and infants. The core of their detailed research revolves around infant-mother pairs. They wanted to answer two main questions. How do social gaze dynamics relate to brain activity in infant-specific brain regions and how do these gaze interactions influence the ability of babies to segment words? Utilizing FNERS, they measured the brain activity of nine-month-old infants, while observationally coding how these infants and their mothers looked at each other during play. They applied rigorous mathematical analysis to these observations, investigating the relationship between these gaze patterns and the infant's brain activities. And their key finding, it's actually the mother's gaze coordination not the infants or the combined gazing patterns that connects significantly to the infant's brain activity. They also discovered that predictability in the mother's gaze patterns was the best predictor of infant's ability to segment words. Discussing the implications, this research points to the critical role of mothers in infant language development, where the quality of social interactions, particularly the mother's gaze, could help gate the learning process. It further postulates that the social brain is influenced heavily by social inputs, suggesting interventional possibilities for enhancing language acquisition early in life. And moving to our conclusion, what stands out is a, the profound importance of nonverbal communication within the mother-infant dyad for cognitive development. This study tells us that the subtle dance of gazes between a mother and her child can shape the brain's foundations for learning language showing us how intricately our social world is tied to our cognitive one. It's just fascinating, Jen. Once again, science reveals the unseen threads connecting us to each other, this time helping us understand the beautiful complexities of how we communicate and learn from the very start of life. And on that insightful note, thanks for joining us on this deep dive into infant social gaze dynamics and their impact on brain activity and language development. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast for more in-depth explorations of the latest scientific discoveries. Until next time, keep your minds curious and your hearts in the conversation. Have you ever felt like you're not quite getting through to your baby? Well, now you can throw those worries out with the baby bathwater. Introducing the latest in parental technology, Gazeaboo. Gazeaboo. It's the quirky new app from Eye Contact Innovations 
designed to enhance your baby's brain power with just a glance. Our fancy algorithms analyze your natural gaze patterns and provide real-time feedback to make every look count towards your little one's language development. Think of it as a personal trainer for playing peekaboo. Your baby will be word-segmenting like a champ. And worry not. Our app comes with the odd humorous eyebrow wiggle notifications to remind you to keep it fun and engaging. So don't just stare at your baby hoping they'll be the next Shakespeare. Download Gazeaboo today and look your way to linguistic success. Available on all platforms because we believe every gaze should be amazing. Download now and get a free virtual high-five from our Gazeaboo mascot, Iris the Intelligent Eye. Gazeaboo, because your infant's first words matter. As long as they're not, stop looking at me, weirdo. Download Gazeaboo and give your baby the gift of gab today. Welcome, dear listeners, to another riveting episode of our podcast, where we dive deep into the heart of interesting research papers that give us a window into our world and minds. I'm your host, Tom. And I'm Jen. Today, we're exploring a really enchanting topic, how children as young as two years old learn the meanings of new words, particularly verbs. There's a fascinating paper titled, Really, He Dazed the Cat to the Boy? Two-year-olds exploit grammatical and thematic content to learn novel verb meanings. And trust me, it's a linguistic treasure trove. Absolutely, Jen. This paper gives us a peek into how infants use syntactic context to layer meanings to verbs they've never heard before. It builds on the intriguing foundation that kids are not just passively absorbing words, but actively dissecting sentences to understand language. Imagine hearing the word blicking for the first time in a sentence like, she is blicking the baby. Kids use these kinds of structures to make sense of language. It's quite remarkable. For sure, Tom. The authors are building on work by other researchers like Gleitman in 1990 and Yuan and Fisher in 2009. They saw that two-year-olds have this amazing ability to interpret novel verbs in transitive sentences, sentences with two arguments, like blicking something or someone. However, it's not just about the number of nouns or arguments. It's the grammatical and thematic roles that are the key players here. Right, and this paper takes it a step further by testing if toddlers can differentiate meanings based on the syntactic structure of a sentence, rather than just the count of nouns involved. In their study, French-learning 30-month-olds were introduced to a made-up verb dazer in different sentence structures, the ditransitive condition with three nouns and a preposition like two, and the conjoined object transitive structure, also with three nouns, but with the conjunction and. That's the setup. And after this exposure phase, they had the test phase. These little geniuses were then shown two videos, one depicting a transfer action and the other a causative action, and asked to find the dazer. The researchers spotted that the kids associated dazer with the transfer action more in the ditransitive sentence condition. What's revolutionary here, Jen, is that the toddlers weren't relying on a simple noun count. Instead, they used the grammatical position and thematic roles to infer meanings. They caught on to the fact that dacing someone something, which involves a transfer, looks different from dacing two things together in a causative action, all from just a preposition swap. That's the magic of thematic roles and syntactic bootstrapping. This paper takes a leap in proving how nuanced and sophisticated infants' language acquisition mechanisms really are. 
It's not just counting nouns. It's about mapping specific grammar and themes to meanings. Indeed, Jen. The implication of this research is huge for our understanding of language development. It emphasizes the importance of syntax and grammar in helping children learn the meanings of words, not just mere repetition or memorization. Definitely, Tom. It's clear that children are far more intelligent and capable than we often give them credit for when it comes to language learning. Kids are essentially little linguists, using every tool at their disposal to understand and communicate. To wrap up, this paper showcases just how kids at the tender age of two are already savvy language learners, using complex cognitive processes to map new verbs to their meanings. It redefines our understanding of the cognitive tools young children use to make sense of the world around them through language. It's been a joy discussing this paper with you all today. The intricacies of the human mind, especially in these early stages of learning and development, never cease to amaze us. We hope we've given you plenty of food for thought about language, how we learn it, and how incredibly adept our children are at navigating its complexities from such a young age. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. We can't wait to explore more groundbreaking research with you. Until next time, keep learning and keep wondering. Take care, everyone. And remember, the next time you hear a toddler talking, they might just be unpacking more of language's mysteries than you realize. Ever wondered how to turn your toddler's babble into a linguistic breakthrough? Introducing Verb Venturers, the whimsical new app that transforms kitty chatter into a world of verb discovery. Imagine a game that creates wacky new verbs and puts them into sentences like, Can you frindle the spaghetti? Or let's zorp the dog to the park. With Verb Venturers, your child takes the role of a linguistic detective, deciphering the meaning behind these wild and wondrous words through interactive, beautifully animated scenarios. And for every new verb mastered, they earn badges like Syntax Superstar and Grammar Guru. It's perfect for parents who want to boost their child's language development while keeping them giggling with glee. Who knew that learning verbs could be as entertaining as turning your living room into a bouncy castle? That's what you get with Verb Venturers. Download Verb Venturers today and turn that really, he days the cat to the boy, into really, he's learning while he plays. Verb Venturers, where linguistics meets ludicrous laughs. Welcome to another episode of our thought-provoking podcast. Today, we're diving deep into the complexities and controversies surrounding coercion in psychiatry and its implication on human rights. That's right, Tom. We're dissecting the paper Coercion in Psychiatry, the Human Rights Challenge by Dirk Richter. Given the gravitas of this topic, it's paramount that we approach it with the thoroughness and sensitivity it deserves. To set the stage, let's understand why this discussion is so pivotal. Historically, psychiatry has intertwined with human rights violations, with involuntary treatments and confinement being the norms rather than the exceptions. And it wasn't until the 1960s and 70s that a shift began, spurring changes that acknowledged human rights within psychiatry, albeit not holding them as the ultimate measure for decision-making. Exactly, Jen. But the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, or the UNCRPD, established in 2006, was a game-changer. It posited that using coercion in psychiatric care is essentially a human rights violation, 
This leads us to the central premise of Richter's chapter, which aims to reconcile the traditionally biomedical ethics of psychiatry with the human rights perspective introduced by the UNCRPD. Now, our listeners might wonder about the terms coercion or biomedical ethics. Coercion in psychiatric care refers to treatments or actions taken against the individual's will. Biomedical ethics, on the other hand, encompasses principles guiding medical professionals about what is considered good or appropriate in the provision of care. These are hefty concepts, and it's crucial we navigate them carefully. We have a deep ethical discussion before us about what constitutes care, autonomy, and the right to self-determination. With that stage set, let's explore the paper's core aspects. The paper investigates the objectives of psychiatry in light of human rights, the methodology used to enforce or resist coercion, and the empirical findings regarding its use and the impact on patients. Dirk Richter articulates that while the historical justification for psychiatric coercion was grounded in the idea that it was in the best interests of the person, recent discussions emphasize patient centricity and the validity of treatment against a person's will. Which brings us to the crux of the matter. The UNCRPD challenges this best interest notion by separating legal capacity from mental capacity. In essence, it argues that coercive practices such as confinement, involuntary treatment, and other non-consensual measures are akin to torture and degrading treatment. These are highly contentious issues. Research within this field doesn't support claims that coercion in psychiatric settings is beneficial for the individuals affected. Many argue it can have detrimental effects on the therapeutic relationship and recovery journey. That's correct. And the implications of adhering to the UNCRPD are vast. On paper, it could mean a complete abolition of psychiatry's coercive practices. But Richter points out that the application of these principles isn't straightforward. Clinicians worry about the responsibility they bear for patients who may be a danger to themselves or others. It becomes a balancing act between protecting individual rights and societal safety. And herein lies a complex web of ethical, social, and professional implications. If coercion were entirely abolished from psychiatry, what happens to those in urgent need of care who may not recognize their condition? What structures and systems would we need to uphold their rights without subjecting them to non-consensual practices? Richter also stresses that the move towards patient-driven care must be authentic and not just an idealistic target. We should aim for a scenario where patients wholly dictate the terms of their treatment, not as mere passive receivers. As we wrap up, it's essential to consolidate our thoughts. We've explored the historical use of coercion in psychiatry, its justification, the challenge posed by the human rights perspective, and the repercussions of adopting this approach. It's clear that the field of psychiatry is at a crossroads. Do we adapt to a strictly human rights-oriented approach that eradicates coercive practices, or do we concur with traditional ethics that permit coercion under certain circumstances? What we can agree on is that the discussion, while unresolved, is urgently necessary. As Richter suggests, the ultimate goal for psychiatric services should be the significant reduction of coercion with an ideal of abolition in sight. Listeners, we hope today's episode has enlightened as well as challenged you. The conversation around coercion in psychiatry is a microcosm of a broader question we all grapple with. What are the limits of autonomy, and how do we protect it while safeguarding collective well-being? And remember, 
The evolution of psychiatry, much like any field, especially concerning human rights, is ongoing and demands our active engagement. Thanks for tuning in, and until next time, keep pondering and push for progress. Tired of the same old psychiatric practices? Looking for a new wave of mental health care? Look no further. Introducing the revolutionary Uncoerce Me, Inc. With our cutting-edge, no-restraints technology, you can say goodbye to dreary days in dingy institutions and hello to liberating, patient-empowered therapy. Forget about force-feeding meds. Our patented Freedom Capsules are placebo lookalikes designed to give you the feel of taking control, even if it's just sugar. Trick your mind into health. Worried about being strapped down? Our newest straitjacket Snuggies are soft, cuddly, and completely ineffective at restricting movement. Perfect for that freeing hug without the commitment. But that's not all. Subscribe to our Choose My Treatment package, and we'll send you a monthly box of random, fun, and absolutely optional therapy toys. Decision paralysis be gone. And for those of you thinking, what if I really want that locked room experience without the coercion? We present relaxation rooms like escape rooms, but with optional exits clearly marked. So come on down to Uncourse Me, Inc., where your mind is liberated and your will is respected. Kinda sorta, in a fun way. And if you call within the next 10 minutes, we'll throw in your very first Uncourse Me tea, emblazoned with, I went to therapy and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. Uncourse Me, Inc. is not responsible for actual therapeutic outcomes. Please consult with a real doctor before completely forgoing traditional psychiatric practices. Offer void in perpetual coercion states and territories. Laugh at the face of traditional therapy with Uncoerce Me, Inc. Because who says you can't have a giggle while asserting your human rights and mental autonomy? Call now. Your brain might just thank you for it, eventually.